The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, creatives, cuisine, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. While we recognize that there are a lot of things in America that can work better, that ought to be improved to make us a more just society, at the same time, we have achieved a great deal that deserves to be celebrated and embraced. You know, just the conquest of the human spirit that we were able to get to the places where we had not gotten to 200 years ago. Back by popular demand, another Full Disclosure Rewind featuring episode highlights. Everything from the education of amateur meme stock traders to a beginner's guide to America. We turn eight in May. Grateful to you, dear listener, for having us in your ear. Please stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And please get in touch to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start this rewind with the Mulligan Brothers, new investors from Oregon who rode the stock of GameStop, which was supposed to be this moribund video game retailer. They rode that stock against the hedge fund industrial complex. Start me off, jump ball. Uh, you guys, admittedly, when you wrote me, you said you were new to investing. I don't understand how something like this uh, 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 drew you guys in. Did you have just some extra money? Were you bored? Fear of missing out? How did this work? Take me back to January of 2021. Yeah, I mean, I was um, following Wall Street bets mostly for the comedy of that sub. If you've ever been on there, it's an insane place and everyone should check it out at least once. Um, and initially, we saw what was happening with... Uh, DFV or Keith Gill, Roaring Kitty, and the GameStop play, um, not knowing his bull case for the company by hearing about this supposed mother of all short squeezes. So we bought in at that time, like so many others, and lo and behold, the play was correct and the squeeze was on until that buy button got taken away. But our initial uh, jump into this whole experience was that uh, early January craze of people buying in. Do you have memories of GameStop? I mean, was this uh, a meaningful to you? Did you kind of want to defend the honor of GameStop from these vicious short sellers? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been going to GameStop since we were like young kids. And there's, you know, so many memories of getting some of our first video games there. And even up through the pandemic, I was going in there to swap games out. Um, I think a lot of like folks that didn't have enough money to buy new fresh games all the time went to GameStop a lot because you could swap old games. Um, so that's kind of our experience with it growing up. Um and yeah, there's definitely the element of, man, these companies are trying to take down GameStop. I'm like, no way, man. <laughs> I mean, that. gaming is so huge within people of our generation, you know, and it's only an industry that is growing so fast. So, you know, there's there's a lot of room for companies like GameStop to go. And just to illustrate for everybody, I'm looking back at the chart for years, going back to 2017, you have a stock that's, you know, scraping the bottom in the 20s, in the teens. Uh, it gets to the low single digits by 2019. I think it hits 
$3, what is it, $4, $2. And then the inflection point, uh, <laughs> January of 2021, it goes from $19, shoots all the way up to $325 in less than a month. And you guys are watching this and you have this mysterious Kaiser Sose type figure. What is it? Uh, what is his name? Kitty? Wall Street Bets? I know I sound like an old I guy. I mean, he's he's a YouTuber. It's everywhere. He's not mysterious at all. You can check out his channel, Roaring Kitty. Keith Gill, he's been very upfront. Roaring yeah. Kitty. Roaring Kitty tells you that this is going to be a short squeeze. The mother no, of all so short he, squeezes. He's a, a value investor. He's a deep value investor. He might be not traditional in, in how he went about what he did, but he had been saying for years that GameStop was undervalued. And if you look at his channel, he makes a pretty darn good case for it. Now, a lot of people who jumped in at the time didn't necessarily know that. The hype around the short squeeze wasn't from Keith Gill. It was from the community of Wall Street Bets. So I think we do have to separate those two things. But how did you guys even know what a short squeeze was? Again, I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm trying to see the kind of the education of new investors. Yeah, it's so you you learn, right? So one thing that's been amazing about this whole experience over the course of the year is we've been going on pl places like Reddit. People make these posts and some of them are very skilled and know what they're talking about and others are not so much, but you weed through that, right? And the the cream rises to the top. And by just going on forums, we learned what these things were, the mechanics of them, and enough at least to know that the play was good, or at least feel it was in our own minds, you know? Like, people are making their own decisions here and doing their own research. So, uh, we learned it from Reddit, you know? And as the year has gone on, we've learned more and more, and as we decided to make a film on all of this, we've only gotten deeper and talked to experts and, and learned about what's going on in our markets. And it's been fascinating to watch these people teach each other. Yeah, all through just the power of the internet and through these messaging boards on Reddit, you know, upvoting to bring something that's valuable to the surface of the conversation, downvoting if it's not pertinent or if it's a waste of time, but also using like memes and just humor to disseminate some um, pretty intricate financial, you know, tools. So it's it's been hilarious. It's been fun to watch. And it's been really instructive for a lot of people out there who have always felt that the markets weren't for them or that. It's only like, you know, rich people that look a certain way, they get to be involved in our markets. So uh, it's been interesting seeing what massive uh, diversity there is in this community, too, who for the first time feel that they understand some of these um, inner workings of their markets and are willing to take part. Uh, do you mind Do you mind if I use the, the millennial parlance? Did you have a stimmy burning a hole that you guys wanted to spend? I mean, where did the cash suddenly materialize well, at the beginning of 2021? I think it's important to note that these, quote, apes or these retail investors, they're not a monolith, right? So they're not all millennials. It's a very wide range of ages, races, ethnicities. And we've been talking to these people for the better part of a year now. So I think it's a bit disingenuous to paint the picture that it's just a bunch of millennials going crazy over a stock. Um, but for us specifically, and we don't speak for other people, um, we it wasn't just stimulus checks. I had my own money I put into this. You know, been interested in investing for a long time, and this was kind of a catalyst. You know, I think so many people in the pandemic who normally don't have time to pull their nose out of the grind suddenly had time to step back, like people of better means do, and learn about markets and decide to step in for the first time. So, I don't. I think we shouldn't ignore just how big and how varied uh, this movement was amongst people that wanted to better their futures. Yeah, we've spoken to, you know, 50-year-old moms, 70-year-old dads. We've spoken to teenagers from Austria, from England, 
from Canada. There's people from all over the place, you know, South Korea. It's it's crazy. We we would put basically put an ask out for people to send us a short video of their experience and why they got involved in the first place. And the diversity in those in that group of people is phenomenal and is interesting and fascinating to see how many people from all over the world and all walks of life in this country were interested in engaging in our markets and looking for um, a fair shake. Well, tell me about that experience with GameStop. Do you remember what the investment, you both of you together, and what the price was that you got in? Yeah, I initially got in at one twenty, I think. Um, Seriously, wait, one hundred and twenty dollars or a buck? One hundred and twenty dollars. Yeah, I got in much uh-huh. higher than that. I jumped in like at the top. Uh, I think it was like around three forty, and then averaged down. But here, look, like the, the thing about like jumping in so high is you got to remember, I jumped in at one twenty or whatever it was. It's about that when we were correct about the play of the short squeeze, you know, that would have been profitable, and it still is, by the way. But even the the people that bought in higher, like it was moving up. the The play was correct. It got stopped. So I think. You know, I don't. It's it's a bit hypocritical to. Uh, well, before before we get into that mechanically, I just want to explain for our uh-huh. listeners that the stock went f- all the way up to four hundred and eighty three dollars interday. I mean, yeah. that is kind of unthinkable. It's wild. Its current market capitalization, after being kind of derided as a worthless company, it's worth ten billion dollars. So, in addition to maybe the fringe benefit of sticking it to the the short sellers well. that we're trying to kind of accelerate the demise of of a, of a company that you guys fondly remember. Was there potentially this idea also of um, you becoming actual owners of this company, that you helping determine its destiny as people who ran up the stock at a critical time? I mean, we've discussed this with AMC, for example, the way the CEO is back and forth with investors and engaging them on Twitter and seeing if they should open theaters for other events or sell their popcorn to supermarkets. Were you kind of romancing this idea as well with GameStop? So after the buy button was taken away, a lot of people stayed, right? They didn't sell their stock. And as time has gone on, um, the value case for GameStop has become more and more apparent and popular. I mean, Ryan Cohen bought into this stock. Michael Burry was bought into this stock. And what Ryan Cohen, who, of course, great entrepreneur who founded Chewy, took on Amazon and won basically in the pet space and e-commerce. He has gone on to take this company and bring in people from Amazon, from Chewy. And where this company is going is not where it was, right? This is, when you say dying brick and mortar, you know that that was GameStop at one point. But right now, this is a completely different company with a different runway of where it's going to go. So yeah, we've become value investors in the company as time has gone on. And most people have bought more. They've gotten more and more convinced in the company itself. Um, but you know, that's not to say people aren't still in it for this squeeze. So it's it's a bit of both. But for us personally, like... Yeah. I mean, it's it, again, it's a really diverse group of people and their motivations are just as diverse. Some people are in it just to make a ton of money. And some people like ourselves have um, turned towards a value investment and some people started as a value investment. Like Keith Gill. Yeah, exactly. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our next stop on this special Rewind episode, my chat with CNN anchor John Avlon on his book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. We recorded this special show before an audience at the University of Richmond's Robin School. Joining me on stage at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business is John Avlon. You see him mornings anchoring CNN, where he's senior political analyst. He was previously the editor-in-chief and managing director of the Daily Beast, and he served as chief speechwriter for the mayor of New York 
during September 11th. Thank you so much. The book is Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Thank you. John, the dean stole some of my thunder, but, you know, four score and seven hours ago, you were on Colbert, and now you're slumming it on full disclosure. (laughs) But for everybody to understand, it was wonderful. I got this email out of the blue from John Avalon. It was, you know, pre-COVID, well pre-COVID, well pre-the monuments, saying, I'm coming through Richmond. I'm doing some research. Can you meet with me? And we uh, went up and down Monument Avenue back then. This was 2019. We ate at Terrence. And then, I mean, 2020 happened. and you're here at a at a, a parlous time for the country. I mean, Dean mentioned that today is a, a very important date for global history, and we're here to ponder the country and the the planet and everything. And I wonder what's in your head <laughs> um, about this day in particular. It's surreal. I can't ignore it. For everybody in posterity listening, that Russia invaded Ukraine, what was supposed to be just a you know annexation ish of a couple of breakaway regions turned into what seems at least like Cold War Three. Well, look, spoiler alert, Putin lied. It's the most predictable thing in the world. Um, what I think is significant is that there's a danger, particularly when we don't know our history, to take our gains for granted, whether that's democracy or whether that's 75 years of relative peace and prosperity in Europe, which is not the norm in European history at all. And it's not just the beginning of the 20th century where we had two world wars in the first 45 years. I mean, the history of the European continent was fighting brutally between countries. Why has the last 75 years been different? It's because we won the peace. It's because we won the peace finally after royally screwing it up after the first world war. And that was deliberate. And that was intentional. And that was a US-led effort that brought together our allies to do actually precisely what Abraham Lincoln intended. What was his vision of winning the peace, which he never got to implement after the the Civil War? And that's unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. That was Lincoln's prescription for peacemaking. And that's what we finally did after the Second World War. And I want to tell you the quote, the moment that actually became the seed, the genesis of this book. Years ago, because these things germinate over long periods of time, uh, I found a quote from General Lucius Clay, who's somewhat forgotten figure, but shouldn't be. He was the uh, American general born in Georgia, son of a three-term Georgia senator, born 30 years after uh, the Civil War. And he was Ike's guy who led the German occupation, the good occupation as it's sometimes known. And a reporter asked him, what guided your decisions? And he said, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. That's profound to me, in part because it's a statement of awareness about the continuity that can exist between the past, the present, and the future. And and that's sort of the sweet spot for most great speeches, for I think most big ideas, for the idea of applied history, which is where we apply the lessons of the past to our present moment with an eye towards guiding ourselves to a better future. And that's what I've tried to do with this book. That's what Abraham Lincoln did, certainly in his greatest speeches and the second inaugural address. And the fact that some folks had taken democracy, liberal democracy, the liberal democratic order for granted, I don't think we'll do that as quickly now, but it shouldn't have taken this. This is a very serious moment in history. 
It does not need to be decisive, but the implications for the trajectory of the 21st century are massive because if Putin gets away with this, you know, one day it's Ukraine, the next it's Taiwan. It's about an assault on the international liberal democratic order. And that's why democracies need to stand up and apply real pressure so there is punishment for this kind of lawless, violent behavior. And that can be short of a kinetic war, but this is a real testing time today. And it's a wake up caller. It should be for all of us. A few of the surreal um, tableaus that I remember from uh, January 6th footage, and we're still reeling from that uh, a good year later, is there's this one snapshot of the one MAGA rioter coming in with the Confederate flag. And uh, a person watching him in kind of an animal pelt is actually the son of a Brooklyn uh, Orthodox Jewish judge. Yeah, These are both kind of uh, banded together in some, on some sort of cause. A bust of Richard Nixon is overlooking them, and there's an abolitionist senator overlooking them as well. And they've both breached the halls of the U.S. Capitol. Meanwhile, outside, you see a confluence of the U.S. flag and the Confederate flag flying together, apparently in the same cause. I can't get my head around this. I mean, the Confederacy nominally ended 157 years ago, but there's a lot of unresolved business. There is. And, and we see, obviously, the strains erupting today. You know, having covered January 6th, having covered the Trump presidency, having written this book over the course of the Trump presidency. Uh, as editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast, running reporters in the White House, as an anchor and analyst at CNN, there were two things that struck me. First of all, that, you know, coming home to Abraham Lincoln was like medicine. I mean, here's a person whose essential qualities of his personality that directly inform his leadership are empathy, honesty, humor, and humility. But then you see the parallels in our politics all the time. And they're not precise. You know, Abraham Lincoln, or rather Mark Twain, uh, reportedly said, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. But it's really important to keep an ear out for those rhymes because it can be enormously clarifying. Because if you just listen to people at face value and you don't know the history and the context, you might not understand that it's an echo of something that was said before that was decidedly on the wrong side of history. Like the big lie is in some ways a new form of lost cause mythology. Think about it. It's a refusal to accept defeat, the creation of a whole myth that's entirely self-serving. But even then, the Confederate flag didn't make it to the Capitol. And the reality is that race and the Civil War runs through American history. It cannot be neatly excised. So we need to deal with it. We need to confront it. We need to understand it. And um, we still haven't done that. But we are making progress. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. And, and we are making fitful progress towards that more perfect union. But the pushback we're seeing internationally right now, domestically over the last several years is serious. I mean, democracy, our ability to reason together is being challenged, is being threatened. I mean, the mere fact that we're still, that, that a small but loud portion of the population refuses to accept reality when it comes to an election result. That's a direct threat to democracy. The fact that it's persisted after the election, absent all facts, if that doesn't wake you up, you're not paying attention. Stay with us. If you are just joining us, this is a special Rewind episode of Full Disclosure celebrating its eighth year in 2022. I recently chatted with Moshe Wanunu, formerly executive producer of CBS Evening News, on the network TV news kicking and screaming its way into the era of digital and streaming. Too much information? Former CBS Evening News producer seeks role as, quote, news concierge. 
The former executive producer of CBS Evening News is among the many journalists discovering they don't need a traditional media apparatus, say a TV network control room or giant printing press, to serve up information and analysis. Some reporters are taking to independent newsletters via companies like Substack. Wanunu has found a perch for himself on Instagram, where he helps everyone from random followers to a handful of celebrities make sense of current events. He even takes requests to help explain specific topics. Joe Jonas is among those (laughs) asking him questions. This is your quote. My feed is sort of Drudge Report meets Axios meets The Skim, all on Instagram. Full disclosure, we are talking to Moshe Wanunu. He's a veteran uh, network TV executive gone feral and independent. Please stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. In fact, we are on every podcatcher on the planet. You could catch us on Virginia Public Radio, WVTF Radio IQ, across the Great Commonwealth. We're up in Arlington and in much of D.C. on WERA 96.7. You could catch us down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM and out west in Ventura on KPPQ. Holler, direct message me, however you want to get in touch, if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Moshe Wanunu. He was formerly the executive producer of CBS Evening News, something he ascended to in his mid-30s. He's since decamped gone out on his own to create at Moshe and uh, Mo Digital. And we're talking about the experience of really we're doubling down on the public interest. Uh, sir, were, were commercial opportunities making overtures to you? I mean, how do you even jibe something in the public interest, such as being in touch with nurses and explaining uh, PPP shortages and everything with, say, Sunships coming to you and saying, hold up this bag on your Instagram? Well, it's certainly been um, a challenge, I would say, for those familiar uh, you know, if you're on Instagram, you're uh, you're on TikTok, you're on these social media. Uh, <laughs> the folks that tend to do best are those who uh, engage in lifestyle content, right? The folks who are unboxing uh, new items, uh, clothing, makeup, uh, travel, uh, exciting, lighthearted things. I, I had the good fortune of interviewing uh, the head of Instagram, Adam Maseri, um, on my Instagram yeah, yeah. account over the summer. And one of the questions I asked him was, so, you know, Adam, what is the future of news on the platform? And he's like, honestly, Mosh, it's not something we really think about. And I said to him, you know, challenge accepted. And I think there's uh, there we're watching right now all the platforms. In particular, we watched Facebook go through it. Now Instagram is going through it. TikTok is going through it. And most recently, Spotify is. That news is a precarious place to be when you're these new digital platforms. That it's much easier and you tend to be able to hold people longer if your uh, platform is a happy place where they can go to escape yeah, the yeah. realities of this you know, actual world. It just so happens that each of these platforms over time has taken this, ev- this step, this evolution, most unintentionally to a world where people get their news and information on platforms where they once shared pictures of their avocado toast. And that, I think, happened really amid COVID and uh, the social justice, Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, where Instagram took a very quick turn towards serious subject matter. You know, advertisers don't tend to want to be adjacent to that serious subject matter. They want to escape the controversy. They want people to have a positive impression of what they're doing. So it has been a challenge, but ultimately, you know, you do find just as these platforms 
uh, are now hosting all this content, that the expectation from consumers as these major brands take stands on these issues. And so I think everyone is approaching that reality. And so in some cases, you really have to find a brand that is willing to be next to serious subject matter. And I think, frankly, the case that I make to them is that ultimately, I'm not somebody who tries to shed heat. I try to bring light. Uh, and I'm not somebody who comes in with one opinion. I'm not somebody who's trying to instigate anything. What I'm really trying to do is inform and bring people verified information in the wild, wild west that is social media. And I have found gradually over time, as I've grown, organizations and uh, companies that say, you know, we do want to be, we are comfortable being associated with your content. And most importantly, we want to get to your audience. Moshe Wanunu, uh, I want to take you back to the glitzy world of Midtown Manhattan and car service and uh, <laughs> expense accounts and everything. What's your read on this palace coup at CNN? You know, with Jeff Zucker being taken out as the company is being absorbed into this whole Discovery Warner mega merger. And at the same time that they're atrophying, like you're seeing everywhere else, the cable cord is being cut left and right. And they're trying to make this bold move to get people at some point to subscribe to CNN Plus, just like we see Disney Plus or HBO Max and the others. How is this happening? I've never seen such a newsroom be so incensed about its leader being taken out like this. But at the same time, the entire medium is getting disrupted. Well, uh, full, full disclosure, Robin, uh, I have worked at nearly every network except CNN. So what uh, my analysis here is completely as a third party who, uh, you know, has who knows this world, but not that specific. I'm sure newsroom. I'm sure yeah. Jeff Zucker has called you. I'm sure they've tried <laughs> to poach you in the so, past, but go ahead. Yeah. So um, I would say this. I think you're right to talk about all these various trend lines. You have the trend line of the cable package is dwindling. I mean, if you look at CNN primetime, I think their best show gets about 500,000 to 600,000 viewers these days, mm. um, unless there's wow. breaking news. You know, Fox dominates, MSNBC opinion programming dominates, and CNN has been trying to ride the line for years of, you know, kind of, we just give you the news, but obviously, I think watching their primetime uh, and some of their daytime programming recently, they've also edged in an opinion way. So you have that larger trend line, you have CNN Plus, the big challenge there is, will people be willing to pay for that? You know, if you have Disney Plus and Hulu and Netflix and HBO Max, are you also going to be paying for another streaming package? That's focused on news. Well, news has had... Well, a, yeah. moreover that, I mean, what of my news budget right now? You see, the New York Times has been really successful in getting its print subscribers to pay and pay dearly for digital to the point that in an earnings release now, you don't even pay attention to the print declines anymore. Yeah. If I'm someone out there who pays for Spotify, who pays for HBO Max, not on, on top of the login fatigue, I have in my mind that I already have a news budget. Yeah. And CNN is trying to compete now, again, doubling down uh -huh. against the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you're entering the game in 2022. They have tried to spend big to bring over a couple of folks, including my, my my former boss, Chris Wallace, who's set to host a daily show over there. Uh, but ultimately, they need to put together a package that will convince you and me as kind of new, news nerds, but also just the average consumer out there, uh, that it is worth spending you know $50 to $100 a year for their streaming app. And of course, 
you know, AT&T, the phone company, realizing, you know, it's been very interesting to watch media trend lines because you saw Verizon buy a whole bunch of content because they're like, well, we own the tubes. Let's also own the content. And then Verizon was like, you know, the content business is not for us. Let's sell off our entities. <laughs> Meanwhile, right, right. the other phone company, AT&T, said, you know what? Let's buy some content. And, you know, they bought Warner and they now, you know, they owned HBO and CNN, etc. HBO, CNN, everything. Yeah, Turner. And- and if I, you know, I'm John Stanky and I'm running AT&T, you know, what did he discover, especially in that previous uh, administration with President Trump? Well, it was a real headache owning CNN and also having to manage and lobby the White House. And so ultimately, both politically, but also commercially, they realized, you know, this isn't for us. And so now there's the Warner Media discovery tie up that's happening. And so typically when these huge media things happen, uh, management changes occur. So you have the digital trend line, you have the acquisition, the new development related to discovery, you have the Cuomo lawsuit happening. And then along that, you have the kind of uh, ratings going down and kind of CNN figuring out its future. Now, what are we more than a year since Trump has left office? And, yeah. you know, a lot of media entities, you know, Trump would often say on the campaign stuff, I don't understand why the media mistreats me so much. I'm so good to them. And to a certain extent, he was right when it came to ratings, right? Media entities, especially cable, traditional media. By the way, digital subscriptions, whether you're the Atlantic or the New York Times, in- benefited commercially by the chaos. Enormously from Trump. Yeah, yeah, from the last four years. And so ultimately, everyone has spent 2021 trying to figure out, okay, we don't have Trump around anymore. But but then suddenly you'll see his, you know, he still makes some headlines to the extent that he does. Uh, and they're emphasized on the on the cable news outlets. And so you have all of those headwinds happening. So the bottom line, the answer to your question is, I don't quite know, Robin, but if you have five of those things happening at the same time, you know, ultimately uh, between maneuvers and the new management, uh, ratings declines of 2021, uh, litigation where we haven't quite learned the full story, um, I think are, are all factors that played into what took place at, at CNN in the past two weeks. You know, Motion, in closing, there's always been this wild card that CBS News and CNN would shack up. After all, they share resources like Anderson Cooper. You see cross-pollination on on 60 Minutes and everything. It's, uh, you know, the, the parent right there, CBS Viacom, I don't know who owns who, is kind of one of these other wallflowers, too, at the dance right now. It's kind of dizzying to watch, especially as Discovery Warner is about to happen. Yeah, I you know, if you go through the history of it, there was a moment in time where uh, CBS, uh, or CNN was bigger than CBS. And I think this was like Ted Turner days or whatever. And so CNN was looking to buy CBS and then it flipped. And then CBS was bigger than CNN. And CBS is like, well, we'll buy you. There have been conversations I'm aware of over the course of the past two decades in multiple iterations with multiple management. The bottom line is this, you know, when you're competing these days for audience, you need to be able to create content, to create content, you need money. To have uh to have money, you need to be bigger. And and ultimately, when you look at the terrain, Disney owns ABC. Disney is a you know hundred billion dollar plus big company. Comcast owns NBC. Again, a hundred billion plus. And so when you look, uh, Fox is a huge company. CNN tied up with Warner Media. CBS is really the kind of the smallest kid um, there. Wow. And you know, like I think CBS at peak. CBS before it got in with Viacom was a $30 billion company. So really, you know, ultimately competitively speaking, it can't um, be, uh, it can't do as much as the other folks that they compete with. They, they just, they're not, 
they don't have the money and they don't have the size. And so ultimately what you've seen over the course of the past few years is everyone keeps buying each other up to get bigger to compete, to get bigger to compete. I mean, you know, and then you're now competing with Netflix's of the world and the streaming entities and Apple uh, and Spotify. You know, everyone's in the content game these days. You just saw New York Times with some huge acquisitions and CBS tied up with its old, you know, cousin Viacom. But what is Viacom? It's 20 something cable channels, you know, including MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, BET. Uh, you know, if we were in the 90s, it's one story. It's another story now in the 20s. You really, you really tangibly feel the boulders falling around and on top of you. Uh, something something definitely has happened in the past year, and the CNN thing seems to be kind of a, a coda or a postscript on all the disruption that we are seeing. Moshe Winunu, uh, I'm glad to finally have you on this show. Veteran uh, Wunderkind, network news exec turned, what, multimedia renegade. Does that sound right? A multimedia renegade, I'm going to trademark that right now, Robin. <laughs> Come back on, will you? I Anytime, anytime for you, my friend. Full disclosure, stay with us. You can, of course, listen to Full Disclosure episodes in their entirety on all fine podcatchers, including NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts. Here's the link, fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family and coworkers. If you are just joining us, we are rewinding back to some fun conversations. Author Roya Hakakian, a fellow Iranian Jew, recently came on the show to discuss her misadventures as an immigrant documented hilariously in her book, A Beginner's Guide to America. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to author Roya Hakakian. The book is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. I want to quote from the section on public transportation getting lost. Assimilation, you write, is not a destination. It may be best likened to a marriage. You do not have to assume all the colors of America only to know her deeply, love her despite her flaws, and live alongside her harmoniously. And in that section, you write about being able to breezily answer when asked, where are you from? <laughs> you know, this was a very uh, fraught question for Iranian immigrants in the 1980s because mm -hmm. Iran was first and foremost associated with the hostage crisis mm -hmm. and a, a dreary time. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the worst case in elementary school, I'd be told, go back to your country or terrorist or go take somebody hostage. But... The microaggressive way in the present tense is to ask somebody, no, where are you really from? Where's your accent? Mm -hmm. If you tell someone you're from mm -hmm. Miami, well, it's not sufficient. Mm -hmm. No, where are you really from? Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me about that and it being loaded and something you were, were scared of. I mean, there was all sorts of ways that immigrants, you know, if people were open-minded enough, you could say, I'm Persian, like Masjabrani says, like the cat, meow, you know? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But others would say, oh, you know, my I'm from the, the, the Middle East, the former Ottoman Empire or something, anything but telling mm -hmm. someone you're from Iran. Right, right. And it's interesting because, as you know, and you just mentioned, a lot of Iranians in the United States introduce themselves as Persian-Americans. And I've had this conversation with nieces and nephews who say, I'm Persian-American, why don't you you know, why do you introduce yourself as Iranian-American? And I always say because <laughs> I have to face the responsibility of, you know, the current political situation and be able to, you know, speak up on behalf of both parties, you know, both Iranians and Americans and try to bring some insight into what drives our tensions. So, yes, you're correct. And and I that that we are reluctant to say we are Iranian Americans and I assume this is probably the experience for so many 
other immigrants from countries that are at crosshairs with the United States coming into this country. But, you know, there's something I learned, uh, which I wasn't as fully aware of, that in some ways, you know, I used to I used to be afraid of where are you from, because I always thought I had given myself away, that something about me uh, didn't fit in, Sud- something about me it didn't allow me to pass, right, as a fellow ordinary American. I just wanted to pass, like every new immigrant wants, until we pass so much that then we want to go back to who we were and kind of rekindle that life. But then um, I think one of the really important discoveries I made later on, long after I had already passed and was no longer... Uh, really interested in passing because I'd done it enough, it was to recognize that we ask each other, where are you from, as a way of uh, making each other's acquaintance, that this is how conversations began. And it wasn't as harmful or dangerous a question as I used to think of it. And of course, later I realized that You know, Americans who are clearly born and raised in this country ask themselves the same questions, ask each other the same question. You know, I'm from Utah. Where are you from? New Hampshire, you know, and and it's a way of getting acquainted. So I think that's another thing we immigrants can bring into the conversation with each other and with others, which is that. You know, certain questions may jar us or alarm us, but perhaps there's room to think that we're just trying to uh, get to know each other, just as we ask, you know, are you married or, you know, do you have children? Reminds me of my time in Manhattan. I was there the first Mm -hmm. decade of this century. I can't believe we're looking back at it that retrospectively. And Mm -hmm. uh, I was a magazine writer and uh, outside our newsroom at Smart Money was uh, the soup guy from Seinfeld, his <laughs> hole in the wall. His name is Al Yeganet, and I heard right. through the grapevine that he was an Iranian Jew. And right. so I dutifully waited in line with my brother. I held my $20 yeah. bill for the yeah. chowder and everything. Don't ask any questions because he's going to yeah. bark and kick you out of the line. It's freezing yeah. outside and some winter... You know, I think it was 2002. It was clearly after mm-hmm. 9-11. And when we finally got up there and he's ladling the soup from us, I was like, Aga Chitori, how are you? Are you? Is it true you're Iranian? And then he gave me this look of death. Not in public. Come back later. <laughs> and uh, I did come back right as he was closing and he graciously took me in. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you and he explained to me, he resented being called the soup Nazi in Seinfeld, yes. even though it was great for business. You compare yeah. me to some Nazi terrorist, and then he's saying, "Look, we are living in a period after September 11th in Manhattan, where every Afghani restaurant is running an American flag. It's a fraught period, and here you are, you're a cultural icon, but you have to be on the down low about being." Iranian. In fact, there was some Greek imposter across town who claimed that he was the soup guy's long lost brother, you know? Yeah, and it, it it so broke my heart that, you know, he wasn't mm-hmm. an overtly religious guy. He was not a zealot in any sense. He was a right. pop culture fixture, but he was in some ways ashamed of the word Iran. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, this is, uh, but look at what I see. I, you know, I grew up as you, said in post-revolutionary Iran. I grew up in a 
school where, or I, I went to school where we made up, you know, morning lineups in the schoolyard and right. chanted Death to America before I went to class. So I think it's really remarkable that with everything that has gone on between the two countries and with the greatest, most egregious diplomatic violation in the history of diplomacy, which was the takeover of the American embassy and the keeping of 52 Americans hostage for 444 days, the worst we have done in the United States, you know, we have been afraid, uh, we as Iranians have been afraid of sometimes saying that we are from Iran. But, you know, that's been the extent of it. I mean, we could have been rounded up. We could have been, we could have suffered uh, far more. And I think, you know, especially when you look at sort of the history of other immigrant communities in America, right? You know, the Chinese Americans were under the Exclusion Act. You know, the uh, Japanese were rounded up and put in detention camps, right? But I want to say that this civilization, this civilization, the world civilization, and then the American civilization has, can be credited for having made a leap forward because the worst that we have experienced in retrospect and in comparison to what other immigrant minorities, immigrant communities in the United mm. States had experienced is, is far less worse than, than those. Wouldn't you agree? Well, in fairness, you were a persecuted minority in Iran, less so before the revolution. I mean, very few people realize that Iran has the largest Jewish population in the Middle East outside of Israel. I think it was as high as 30,000 before the revolution, and now it's about 10,000. Uh, but mm -hmm. my father tells me about stories of getting beaten up. He and his friends and uh, the headmaster spreading gossip about them when they were little kids. Having said that, uh, mm -hmm. That kind of prepared you and braced you for this kind of uh, skeptical, thick skin that you had to build coming here as a as a minority in a much much bigger country. For sure, and not only I, I and I would dare say so many other immigrants from non democratic societies who move here come with not just thicker skins but perhaps richer perspectives too. So while we recognize, and that's in some ways really the ultimate purpose of my book, that while we recognize that there are a lot of things in America that can work better, that can be amended, that ought to be, you know, improve uh, to make us a more just society. But at the same time, we have achieved a great deal that deserves to be celebrated and embraced as not just our accomplishment as Americans, but also you know, just just the conquest of the human spirit that we were able to get to the places where we had not gotten to 200 years ago. That was Roya Hakakian, author of A Beginner's Guide to America. We close with a flashback to a popular episode, my chat with Mina Kimes, the ESPN, NFL broadcast and social media phenom who actually broke through as a finance writer at Fortune magazine. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to ESPN Jack of All Trades, Mina Kimes. She joins us from Los Angeles. Mina, take me back to the uh, the time coming out of the financial crisis, out of the Great Recession. What would you say was your breakthrough uh, feature piece for Fortune that really got your name out there as, as a brand, as a person you want to follow? Uh, I, I think that 
piece I did on Johnson & Johnson during the recall, you know, just getting sort of dozens of people who worked there to talk to me about some of the cost cutting and um, some of the internal mergers that led in many ways to the lapse in standards. That was what sort of vaulted me to writing investigative stories uh, full time. So that was a big one for my job just because it changed what I was being asked to do, right? Um, no longer just writing short front of the book pieces or even up to that point, I had done profiles of investors, but this was sort of different territory for me. And I continued to do that from that point forward with healthcare and other industries, um, you know, just showing people that's something I could do. But I, I, to be honest, I found it very stressful. I mean, I, I, you know, with those kinds of stories, you're sitting on the phone waiting for people to call you. You're cold calling people who really don't want you to cold call them. And you're being yelled at by lawyers a lot. And yeah, it was the lawyering. A very, the lawyering. Oh. It's kind of the cherry on top of all of it at the very end when you get threatened by lawyers and the Time Inc. lawyers calling it's you in, I can great. imagine. Oh, boy. Yeah, some of those meetings. So your 2012 investigation, was it called Bad to the Bone, which which talked about the unauthorized oh, yeah. use of a cement to repair bone tissue. You won the Henry Luce Award. And then the Columbia Journalism Review cited you in 2012, uh, your exposés uh, among its list of business must-reads for the year. So you truly mm. arrived by then. That, that was a really scary story. <laughs> uh, that, that was about a company that um, had been sued for unauthorized use of a type of bone cement on patients. And um, again, it, so many of these stories just come down to like cost-cutting, businesses move, you know, it's profits at all costs. And, but what's fascinating about that story was uh, there was an unnamed figure in one of the lawsuits, and it turned out to be the CEO and founder of the company. And in the course of you know reporting and talking to people, I learned a lot about him and his role in sort of um, what the company ultimately did, because he was, again, anonymous in the suit. And yeah, that ended up being what the story about was about. And it, I, I just love stories like that, investigative stories, where you really can, I think, confront the fact that decisions made at even the C-suite level of a company that would seem to have no bearing on the lives of people can actually not only affect them, but cost real human lives. And it's such a, um, those things seem so far apart at times, right? These little cost-cutting decisions or whatever strategic moves but they really do have ramifications that go beyond the corporate headquarters. How do you stick to the courage of your convictions in an example like that? I want to kind of unpack this. Is You, you were there. You're admittedly not a, a business person. You did not take economics or math in college. You get a lot of intimidating correspondence from flax, from attorneys and everything. What's your true north in pursuing, say, corporate malfeasance is, is, is kind of sticking to your guns that you know if your gut is telling you that something is not kosher there to just keep following the story? Just common sense for the most part. Um, it's uh, If you spend enough time talking to a lawyer, you can be convinced of anything and confused by everything. And, and just really backing out, looking at a story, looking at the actual facts of the story. And, you know, something I would always do back then is just explain what the story was or the tension or, you know, the narrative, explain it to my husband or my family. And when you do that, you suddenly realize that, you know, the excuses that you've been given, the explanations often don't actually hold water. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, building DCF models. I was never um, looking through Ted K's and finding, oh, I, you know, it wasn't Carol Loomis. I wasn't doing that. Um, I was just asking really basic questions. And it's amazing how often in the business world, basic questions don't have answers. 
Wow. So 2013 happens and uh, Bloomberg News, which you know bought my magazine, Business Week, which is really kind of one of the only acquisitive entities while all these other publications, including the Wall Street Journal, are contracting. How did they make the approach? How did you consider that job? I mean, you really would have to double down on financial reporting and Bloomberg being a very financially rigorous place. So I was hired at Bloomberg by a guy named Dan Golden, yeah. who works at ProPublica now, who is phenomenal. And I count him as a mentor and is just a wonderful human being. Um, and he was given some resources to kind of expand uh, his investigative group at Bloomberg and write stories for both Bloomberg and Business Week. Um, and so he approached me, gosh, I guess, yeah, it was right before then. And that was a difficult decision for me because it wasn't like going from Bloomberg to ESPN, where it was a totally different field and a chance to do something new. You know, it was kind of um, similar in some ways to what I was doing at Fortune, but I had only worked at Fortune and I kind of felt like I needed a new challenge. And I was excited by the prospect of working with Dan, um, which, you know, was proved true. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Do you mind my asking, did Fortune try to keep you? Was it any position to keep you at that point? Yes, but I don't remember how it all played out now. Exactly. <laughs> You've repressed but I remember the being very, yeah, well, you know, I, I just remember being very, I had a strong conviction that it was time for me to do something new. Hmm. So you joined Bloomberg in, in, in 2013. You wrote a feature that I remember. It was so memorable because I, I also covered it as well. Uh, the ongoing saga of, of hedge fund guru Eddie Lampert and oh, Sears yeah. and that decline. I remember seeing you on Bloomberg TV. This was a spectacular, I mean, it was covered so much in I think 2003 or 2004 when Sears and Kmart merged and they said that he might be the next Warren Buffett. And you went in there and really exposed it as the kind of the managerial disaster that it was. Uh, that is also a very difficult person to cover. And when you're talking about uh, the Bloomberg sources, you know, when it hits the committee of all these financial editors, that's running it through a whole different gauntlet. Yes. <laughs> uh, a lot of layers there. God, I haven't thought about that story in a long time. I don't think you can read it online, which is annoying. I feel like Bloomberg locked down a bunch of their stories or something. It was a business week, too. Um, it was a great cover. They kind of photoshopped him to look like a Lord of the Flies type yes. thing, I remember. Uh, because, yeah, it, that's right. Like you were asking me earlier sort of about uh, the stories, the business stories I liked and what I sought to uncover or achieve. And um, that that was a story about how the ideology and per decisions made by one man um, were hurting a business. And, you know, again, it's not like the Cincy story where lives were at stake, but it, it is, I think, the role of business journalists and something I think I tried to do with this story. Uh, there's a very clear line between his decision was to pit all these business units against each other uh, and ultimately the failure of Sears. And, um, you know, I got really lucky. I mean, it's just such a crazy story. And he's such a colorful character with a very... Uh, it, that wasn't just like, okay, you know, costs are being cut. That was a specific corporate strategy. But um, letting people inside that and then again sort of making that connection for them or making that connection um, between this leader and his decisions and what, you know, ultimately trickled all the way down was something that I really enjoyed doing. You were listening to our latest installment of Full Disclosure Rewind. Again, all conversations are available in their entirety on podcast, wherever you get your pod fix. Full Disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. 
Hello to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio, WERA up in Arlington and in much of D.C., WPVM in Asheville and out west in Ventura on KPPQ. Please message me to run full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Next week.